The Book Club is brought to you in association with the Charles Stanley community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm very pleased to be joined by Chris Gosden, who is the Professor of European Archaeology at the University of Oxford and the author of a new book which covers a huge area of history and a huge area of geography and which tells us the story of the history of magic from alchemy to witchcraft from the ice age to the present. Chris, welcome. Now, this is a huge book. It's a huge kind of subject. Can you start, because you do start in the book, by saying, you know, what you mean by magic? Because obviously we're not talking Paul Daniels and the Great Suprendo here, are we? Unfortunately not in some ways. I'm a great fan of all that sort of stuff. No, we're, we're talking about slightly more metaphysical magic, I would say. So, so my definition of magic is it's to do with the human participation in the universe. So that we feel if we're in a magical mindset that we can affect the universe in various different ways through speaking through acting do, through doing a whole range of things which wouldn't necessarily be allowed for in a scientific paradigm but equally the universe can affect us through the movements of planets through a whole range of the actions of spirits a whole range of things so it, it posits a sort of radical two-way movement between us and the universe as a whole is it different in character from, I mean, no, obviously we affect the universe when we design things, when we affect machines, when we, you know, I mean, we, we shape the world around us in a non-magical way as we'd see it. And equally, that idea of man's participation and interchange with cosmic forces is something that seems to be at the basis of religion. Now, you, you do draw a distinction between magic, science and religion, and you talk about them being in a relationship. Can you explain a bit how you kind of connect them no absolutely i've, I've used a, an image of a, a a triple helix so a bit like the, the genetic double helix there are three strands of human history which are interconnected but somewhat separate and those three strands are the ones that you've mentioned magic religion and, and science so one could talk for ages about how you define these things but my brief definition is that religion is a belief in a, a many gods or a single god and we interact with the world with the cosmos through the gods or a god and science asks us to stand back from the world to take a slightly more objective view to think about the forces of the world in terms of, of mathematics in terms of broad and basic principles so, so that, as you say, people attempt to transform the world in all sorts of ways, but these are distinct but linked. And I definitely don't think that one is better than the other. And this is not a book against religion, against science. I mean, it would be ridiculous. So I think they, within the human spirit, as it were, there's a, a desire to belong, to connect, there's often a desire to feel the transcendent, which we might give the name of God to. And there is a desire in a much more practical way to, to understand and influence the world. And those three desires we can talk about in terms of magic, religion and science. 
combination of the three, really. Is it a book that's pro-magic, if you say it's not yeah. anti-religion or anti-science? Yeah, no, it is, definitely. Mainly because so many histories of religion and science have been written, and we would all accept that those things are central to our culture today, whereas magic has been marginalised partly through a fairly successful propaganda campaign on the on the part of of religion and and science. So no, I'm trying to I'm trying to reintroduce magic as a, a crucial strand in human history, but also maybe a crucial strand in in our future as well. well that sounds. I mean, that's that's quite a surprising thing to hear from, you know, someone whose approach as an academic might be expected to be more anthropological, if you like, or archaeological in your case. Yeah, yeah. My day job is digging things up. But I mean, the, the purpose of archaeology is to think about what it means to be human, generally speaking, often in the long durée, the, the longest span of, of human history. So my argument would be that a vital part of being human is, is a belief and practice of, of magic. And that, that has dropped out. Where does it begin? I mean, not for you, though you could, you could maybe talk about that. But you're an archaeologist, you deal with very, very old things. And yeah. You know, there are a few things older than the things you described in the beginning of your book. Yeah. Does it precede religion and precede science? Is it the kind of substrate on which everything else is built? Yes, I think it, it both does and doesn't. So I think those three desires, the desire to participate, to see transcendence and to understand the world in a more practical sense are always there but they get formalised in various different ways at different periods. So maybe magic gets, gets slightly more formalised early on, and religion, I don't know, over the last 10,000 years or so, and, and science is, you know, depending on how you date these things, is a, is a product of, of the ancient Greek world or, or the more modern the last few centuries. So I, I would see magic as earliest, but I think all three have existed all the time. And what are some of the earliest things that tell us that magic was being practiced? Because you go right back to the Paleolithic, don't you? Mm, I do. So, so one of the earliest examples I use in the book is of a beautiful little ivory figure. It's made of mammoth ivory. Uh, and it's, it's yes, not, not ivory as we in, in elephant ivory. Um, and it's in the form of some sort of slightly ambiguous figure it's it's mainly got the body of a, a human but has definitely got the head of something like a lion and it's very hard to know in these periods of the distant past what people were thinking and doing but one possibility is through creating a, a sort of tri-element figure it has a bit of mammoth in it it has a bit of lion in it it has a bit of human that possibly the makers and users of this thing were, were trying to combine the capabilities, the strengths in, the t in terms of those two creatures into the one object. And this thing's 40,000 years old. It was found in a cave in Stadel Cave in, in Germany. So, so, you know, I wouldn't, I'm not claiming that that's the, that's the first bit of magic. That's just where I happen to start, start the book. But I think it does go way back. I mean, that's one of the things that seems to emerge all over the world, this idea of combining human and animal or natural world's properties. I mean, you, you have an extraordinary kind of series of excavations where you describe how people were buried separately from their heads and sometimes the sort of gazelle heads were buried on the people's bodies. And so there was a kind of 
swapping around that yeah. went on. Is that one of the kind of commonalities? Because you do go all over the world and all over history. And I'm wondering what sort of threads come through that seem to be common magical practices. Yes, I, I, yeah, some sort of playing with form, species, substance, I would say. I mean, we often in looking at the past, we have to realise that we're in a slightly unusual historical relationship. So we've become very Linnaean, for instance, we divide up different species and then we have, you know, disciplines of physics, chemistry and biology. And the first two look at what are often seen to be the inanimate world, um, whereas biology looks at the living world. But most people in most times and places don't operate to those categories. What we think of the distinction between human and animal isn't always there. So, yes, people are buried 14,000 years ago in, in the Levant. You get a human body with a gazelle head. Uh, now, that's quite hard for us to, you know, grasp, but it, it seems to be an act of reverence rather than something that was trying to subvert the, the order. So we believe in, in that particular instance, people and gazelles were merged inside and maybe, you know, not as distinct as we would take them to be. You talk about the way in which ritual might be something that's been sort of under-described as a way of describing how human settlements and civilizations sort of changed. I mean, you say, you know, well, there's the, you know, one of the big things that people have made historically is this idea there's a moment or a, a period when we shift from hunter-gathering to agriculture. And you try and complicate that a little, don't you? Yes, I do. I do. I mean, we've got to be careful with the word ritual. It's often said if archaeologists can't explain something, they, they give it the label of ritual. But, but I think there is, a, there is a, a sort of serious purpose. I think we're obviously practical creatures. We need to provide ourselves with food, shelter, protection from various different things. But I think also we're always metaphysical. We wonder how the world works and what our relationship with various other sorts of things are. And rather than necessarily seeing human history as a a process of getting greater practical control over the world. So that's the model where people started off as hunters and gatherers, lived on wild plants and animals, and then learned how to domesticate, how to look after. And farming is often seen as greater control of the world. I think rather than seeing it like that, then we should see these things as a metaphysical shift that people had very close relationships with gazelles and those sorts of things when they were hunters and gatherers and then equally close but slightly different relationships with sheep and goats and domesticated species later on but in all times and places people worry about their position wonder about their position and what the capabilities of various different things are what the capabilities of of humans are and I don't you know we haven't stopped doing that today we we can explain a certain range of things but we're we're puzzled about a heck of a lot of the universe. You talk a little also about the difficulty of knowing exactly what was going on you know before we have a written record when does magic start to be as it were written down I mean again that seems to be a longer time ago than I'd have thought. Yes I mean more or less with the first writing which is in Mesopotamia about five and a half thousand years ago maybe slightly later than that and almost immediately we get accounts of, of various magical 
practices in in ancient Mesopotamia, there are these group of people called Ashipu, who are sometimes translated as exorcists, but more often as magicians. And they can cure the sick. They make observations of the sun, moon, and the and the stars. And and so some of the earliest cuneiform records, and these are people writing on wet clay with little styluses creating cuneiform texts then some of those things are are you know what do we have in the king's palace but equally there are things about the the activities of the the ashipu and and training texts that you need to to train to become an ashipu and 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 the egyptians are are much you know if if anyone anywhere has been metaphysical it's been the ancient egyptians and so there their earliest hieroglyphic writing often contains wandering about gods and, and and the nature of the cosmos. So so yeah, I mean magic goes back as far as written records of magic goes back as far as there is writing. And to go to go back to the ancient Babylonians, what was in a day's work for an Ashipa? Um, there's a lovely account of how to cure someone if they've been possessed by a demon. Um, and the person who is possessed has ringing in their ears, what we probably call tinnitus, as a result of that. And, and the Ashupu does a whole range of different things. There's a whole series of practical. They sweep their courtyard. They go and get various herbs from the, from the, uh, the step. And they talk to the person. They ask them about issues in their life. So that we might see as a form of counselling, although they almost certainly didn't. But the end aim of this sequence of events was to try and get the demon to marry another being. So the Ashipu would make a, an effigy of the demon and do something like tie it to a tree at the effigy. And if, if it worked, then the demon would marry the tree and the person who had, who had possessed them, had, had their ears stopped ringing. So, I mean, there's a combination in there of things that we would see as sort of medical psychoanalytic you know counseling but then also things to do with getting demons to marry trees which we can't recognize very easily within our notions of how the world works i mean that points to something that's that seems to be implicit in the book and i mean i think has been has been argued elsewhere that magical ritual as not very distinct from medicine as not very distinct from from the science of the world or they wouldn't have thought of them as distinct nevertheless kind of pushed advances in medicine and in science. I mean, a large part of the book talks about, you know, all over the world, the way in which the movements of the heavens, you know, for magical reasons, we started to need mathematics and need astronomy. Yeah, this is this is one definite area where magic and science are historically linked. And, and the two areas that you've talked about are, are vital. One is medicine, so the, the sorts of medical practices of the Ashipu, which, to our view, are wrapped up in a whole series of other things. But there was a thing called the King's Watch, for instance, later on in Babylon, where for hundreds of years, people would make very detailed observations of the movement of the sun, moon and the stars, and for astrological purposes. But of course, these were incredibly important astronomically, and also they pushed on the development of mathematics. So, so both astronomy and mathematics are linked into astrology. 
And the, the third area that people have talked of, which is very important, is the relationship between alchemy and chemistry. So people attempting to turn base metals into gold, lead into gold, those sorts of things, gave rise without really meaning to or thinking about it to a whole series of laboratory procedures which became the basis of chemistry, but also a, a whole series of understandings of the chemical properties of you know, first of all, metals, but then a whole range of other things as well. So the history of science and the history of magic are, are you know, often one and the same thing. You have a section, I mean, this jumps forward a bit, but where you talk about, you know, Newton, one of the great fathers of science. And of course, you know, the one fun fact everyone knows about Newton is that he was also an alchemist. Yeah. You say that his not quite contemporary John Dee, you know, who we we, we know was apocryphally at least you know a loon who was trying to talk to angels you think exactly. d has got a, a rather worse press than he deserves oh most definitely i mean he he had a rather more chaotic life than newton so there is chaos in d's in d's life but yes he was an astrologer um he did through his rather dodgy assistant um, Kelly he did try and talk well he, he in his own view he succeeded in talking to to angels and briefly he was employed by Elizabeth I as a sort of court magician and he decided that the time of her coronation based on on astrological um, movements he he was also used as a sort of weapon of war to to think in magical terms how she might you know counteract various of her of her enemies. Um, so so all, all that side of D we see as slightly dubious and uncertain. But but interestingly, he came up with a theory which was which sort of prefigured a theory of gravity. So he was interested in astrology and therefore interested in how the sun, moon, and, and stars affected us. So he was looking for a force that could be exerted between them and us and some sort of astrological force. And, you know, that wasn't all that far off a notion of the solar system, the universe, not that they necessarily thought in these terms then, um, you know, being moved by the force of gravity. So when Newton comes along in the, the, the later 17th and early 18th century and does formalise a theory of gravity, you know, it, there are echoes of D in his work. Yes, is, is that sense of, of looking for the occult which now has all sorts of kind of hammer horror overtones, it wouldn't have been a sort of hammer horror thing to them. It was sort of looking for just hidden forces. Is that right? Yes, yes. I, I do dislike the term occult, I must say, because it, it, it implies that so much of magic was a sort of hole in the corner, you know, furtive activity and some of it some of it of course was but a lot of these things you know d was very open about about what he did um astrologers practiced across britain and europe in an absolutely open manner so uh, it, the writing up of magic over the last couple of hundred years or so does tend to emphasize things like the occult but but um but i think that's you know that's that's relatively rare that people were operating with hidden knowledge hidden hidden practices can you is there a way of sort of historicizing the way magic is seen in every, any given era because it feels like so much of it through so much history you know there's a lot of ancestor worship 
in the earliest forms of magic that you describe all over the world. And there's, a, you know, for instance, you know, Dee and his contemporaries would have looked back, as you write, to Hermes Trismegistus. Mm. And, you know, ancient Egypt, for some reason, their magical tradition became very important in the West. Yeah. Why, why was that? And how, how is it that, that these lines of inheritance kind of emerge? Yes, that's a, that's a, a very good and very large question. So, so a, a, a general answer to start with um, is that just as, as religion and science are historically and culturally based, they don't exist in some sort of vacuum, then so does magic. So although I've tried a sort of general definition of magic, I almost immediately say, that is nuanced by place, time, people's understanding of the world. Uh, I think for me, and I'm absolutely not a specialist in this, I'm just someone who, who really likes it, that the period of the Renaissance is extremely interesting because you get this huge melange of forces, some of which come out of medieval Europe, but some of which come out of the rediscovery of ancient Greece and Rome, and through them, Hermes Trismegistus didn't exist, but was thought to be possibly an Egyptian. But that false knowledge, as it were, was, was um, handed down by the Greeks. So into this rich mix of forces in the Renaissance, you get a, a, a very important strand of the ancient world, which we usually think of in terms of you know, the, the more rational side of things. The, the rational elements of, of Greek philosophy, but, but at least as, as important, we're, we're harking back to, to older traditions of alchemy and, and those sorts of things that Hermes Trismegistus was connected to. Are there sort of distinct magical traditions? I mean, you've talked a lot, a lot here about that kind of Western, Near Eastern set of mixed influences, but you also talk about Australia, yeah. Talk about China. Yeah. Are these totally different magical worldviews, or are there things that you can see that are in common? A, a, a bit of both, I would say. I mean, at base, they're totally different. I think China, again, is fascinating because a lot of Chinese practices generally, but the practice of magic, revolved around a relationship with the ancestors. So people felt that their well-being in the present was often dependent on the actions of their ancestors in the afterlife. And therefore, they had to keep the ancestors sweet by giving feasts for them, doing a whole range of, of you know, respectful practices. But also they would ask, the, there's a tradition of divination, which comes out of the Bronze Age in China, where people are asking their ancestors questions, um, and they have very specific technologies for, for doing that. They have either the undershell of a turtle or the, the shoulder blade of an ox, and they would write a question on one of these two things, which could only have a yes or no answer. Will the queen have a boy? Will our harvest fail? And then they would apply the ancient equivalent of a red hot poker to, to the, the shell or the, or, or the bone and then watch it crack. And the crack was the voice of the ancestor in the sound and the shape of the crack gave you the, the yes or no 
response. And this is, I mean, divination happens all over the place, but this very specific tra tradition evolves within China and, and, and very specifically to do with the, the importance of the ancestors. And Australia is, is very different again. And Europeans, I think, only ever have a very superficial understanding of Aboriginal culture, which is always much more deep and sophisticated than we understand. But uh, my superficial understanding would be that people, many Aboriginal people, would not see that they have a relationship with the land on which they live, but they are in some way, they are the land, and the land forms their culture. So the, the songs, the stories, the genealogies are given to them by the landscape in which they live. And therefore, people are able to, to sing the structure of the landscape, for instance, the, the rhythm of the song it echoes or evokes the, the topographic shape of the of the landscape and and again those those traditions are so interesting but so very different to our own that you know they give us quite a lot of pause for thought one of the things that surprised me you talk a, a little in in the book about shamans who seem to be kind of quite a controversial subject among archaeologists i sort of thought of shamans as being from the americas and you're, you're locating them in the Arctic tundra more often. Are those two different sorts of shaman I'm thinking of? They're, they're different but related. So, so, so the shamans of, of Eurasia um, today and probably for the last quite a few thousand years are located in Siberia. And these are people who will have the power to intercede with the spirit world. They can either travel to the spirit world, or they can inhabit important animals like bears or, or reindeer or whatever. They can become a bear for a while and then come back unharmed. The, the Americas were, were peopled for the first time, probably one of the last bits of the globe to get human beings, peopled for the first time about 15,000 years ago. And those people came from Siberia. So they walked across Across the Bering Strait. Across the Bering Strait, yeah. There, there was land all the way across. So, so those American shamanistic traditions have their ancestry in Siberia. So they are both the, you know, linked, but also then they go off in their own, own different trajectories and, and directions. What was the point at which, at least in the West, though I'm sure it's happened elsewhere in the world as well, we sort of turned on magic? Mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I mean, that, that again is a, a good and big question. I, I mean, I think notions of heresy were obviously, religious notions of heresy were obviously extremely important coming out of the, the later Middle Ages into the early modern period. So not only did you have to have the right strands of religious belief, but then other structures of belief like magic could, could get you into more well, deadly deadly trouble but then I think post-Newton and you know again a, a, a huge topic and, and um, one that I'm by no means a specialist in science came to think of itself I didn't, you know, and the figure of Newton I don't think this was true but sometime afterwards science came to think of itself as a ro royal road to truth that to really understand the world the only way of doing that was through scientific means 
and therefore things like magic were seen as as second rate primitive dangerous you know and 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 ultimately ineffective so science's question of magic would be does it work um, and where you know the notion of working is in a is judged in a very sort of practical empirical sense and it, well in, i mean you know to to be the scientific kind of popperite here um you know people might still say we, you're advocating you're saying magic has a place in our world we should start to you know magic has a place in our future i think you close the book by saying you know i think magic is something we can learn from mm. but some people would say well only in as much as it works or offers an explanatory adequacy for its way of you know accounting for for phenomena i mean isn't isn't that quite a strong argument yes and no i think if if that argument is phrased purely in terms of a sort of experimental empirical um, way of thinking about the world then i think i think that is trying to get magic to perform in a way that it can't so to go back to the ashipu um, let's presume that they cured the patient of their tinnitus so so we might see the cure in the herbs that they gave them which would you know which would be a, a, allow for a medical explanation but i think also recent forms of medicine in the present would say that people's psychological state are important in terms of their health and well-being whether they recover from something or not and and maybe you know it's not just uh, certainly the ashipu wouldn't have thought it was only the herds or even mainly the herds maybe the the more psychological stuff and, and that psychological stuff may have included strapping an effigy of the demon to a tree and then you know the person breathed a sigh of relief relaxed and the tinnitus gradually went away so i think you know if you if you analyze the actions of the ashipu by taking their herbs and saying well you know that that wouldn't work uh, on the basis of what we know in terms of modern medicine then you know fair enough but but it's part of a a much broader package which which in fact deals with a much more rounded notion of what it means to be human so our um, psychological states are our feeling of fear about the world wonder about the world are are incredibly important but but often slightly hard if not impossible in some elements to cope within a, a scientific world view. i guess you know a medical doctor might say well yes but we can you know if not completely account for we can measure the placebo effect you know we know that yeah. that you know the mind body divide isn't absolute we can you know then in effect we can fold what are the accidental discoveries of magic into a scientific schema without calling them magic anymore i mean the old quote that magic is undiscovered science yeah i mean that that surely has some sort of virtue to it as a way of thinking about the world you know if you define magic as not science yes but for me i mean science is great strength as it works you know so 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 as a friend of mine said you know nobody would want to go back to medieval dentistry <laughs> you know, so there's no doubt but in terms of of say something like an ethics of care how we relate more broadly to the planet then science that is not you you can graph that onto science but science doesn't give you that whereas i think something like magic 
through its notion of us participating in the universe and, and maybe we are kin to the world in a, in a variety of different ways and if we're you know we care for our kin we care for our friends and those sorts of elements of human experience could, could actually counterbalance science because when science is linked strongly as it is at the moment to you know market economies and capitalism then then it allows us to extract it allows us to take a great deal from the world but what magic might be able to do is say hang on a minute you can do this but should you do it so so that's that's i think is magic's if if you try and think about it purely in terms of its effort you know physical efficacy then it's not going to look good against science but if it helps you you know pose these broader relationships and questions then i think it's vitally important what got you started on this on on thinking you know as an archaeologist did you did you keep seeing instances of of what appeared to be magical objects magical evidence of magical rituals or magical places and think you know this is something that my discipline hasn't explored enough yeah well I think it's two two things broadly. One is I worked for quite a while in Papua New Guinea as an archaeologist digging up the past. And I got to know people relatively well. And I, I used to go every year for 10 years. And, and you know, people are, ab- I mean, they're not serious about magic in the sense that they just totally take it for granted. That if you get ill, it may well be as a result of sorcery that you can't go to a particular place because it's got a dangerous spirit in it. There's a whole range of things that are just part of the fabric of people's lives and and which are being really interestingly repurposed now. So to get your kids into university, you fill in the, you know, the equivalent of the the UCAS form, but then you might well want to to, um, practice some magic to make sure the application is, is successful. So sharp elbowed middle classes. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> give give the middle classes a weapon and they will they will take it wherever they are in the world. So for Papua New Guineans, you know, if you said all this stuff doesn't exist, then then I don't think they'd even recognize the the set. So that on the one hand, here were a group of people who I knew liked respected, and there was no doubt that for them this stuff was real. So that on the one hand, and then also I worked in one of the Oxford University Museums, the Pitt Rivers Museum, um, which is, for anyone who hasn't been there, is a most marvellous museum. And it's got a load of magical stuff in it. So it's got a witch in a bottle, it's got lots of amulets, it's got a whole range of different things. And, and some of which come from Britain rather than further flung parts of the world. And that got me thinking, you know, there are so many traditions here with things that we would call magical, how and why, and how come we haven't thought more about all this stuff. Have you, I mean, you're obviously an enthusiast. Have you practised magic yourself? Is it? <laughs> no, I'm not going to answer. No, I haven't. I haven't. I am a sort of positive agnostic as to whether magic works or not. I think if we, and I, I run this experiment for myself, I think if we could open ourselves up to a broader view of the world. So many people in the world, for instance, would say that the world is sentient, not just the plants and animals, but the rocks, the rivers, the sun, all of those sorts of things. Now that seems to me 
a slightly unlikely possible. But I mean, I I wonder what the world would look like if I could start to believe that, and that would then give you a connection, give you a kinship, give you a a depth of relationship. So I think the fact that we've so closed ourselves off from magic, the least we can do at this point in in the present, where we're desperate for thinking new thoughts. Well, whatever is going on in the world, it's not good. Wasn't it Henri Bergson who had the idea that consciousness could be a property of the universe and that our minds are just receivers? A- absolutely, absolutely. And, and serious philosophers are thinking about this as well. Uh, so it is a mystery if you posit that some things are conscious and lots of things aren't. So one way out of that impasse is to think that maybe in some way, at some level, everything is conscious. And then you've just got different types, forms, levels of conscious. And, and I think that's a fabulous idea. Can I ask to be, be, end on a sort of slightly practical note to go back maybe to our point? The, the way we think about magic now, there are certain things that are kind of, you know, associated with magic. You know, it's the magic wand, the magic word, you know, things like abracadabra. Where do they come from? Is a magic wand something that, that's a sort of, creation of you know harry potter's ancestors or, or were there magic ones in real magic if you like yes yeah, so there have been a variety of, of i mean the the egyptians had a, an object which looks more like a boomerang to us than a you know a quintessential wand but one translation for what that object is is as a wand and it was definitely a magical object that helped you practice magic in various other traditions I mean, it would be interesting to think where the sort of, you know, the, the fictional apparatus of magic has come from. I guess it's, it's come from all sorts of places. But, I mean, things like spells, you know, people, people did practice spells written or, written or spoken. So I think, I think the sort of the cultural, you know, the, the, the popular cultural magic has is, is taken bits and pieces from real life, as it were, and, and combined them into quite a compelling combination of things. Where does abracadabra come from? Well, our earliest written knowledge of, of abracadabra is in a, a manuscript of 1362. Um, but people like the Greeks played around with the sounds of words and uh, made up this nonsense words, essentially, which sounded powerful and, and potentially useful. And, and abracadabra fits within this sort of broader tradition of, of words that maybe had efficacy by virtue of their sound. Do you have a sense, I mean, I, I imagine this is to a certain extent guesswork, but a sense of the way in which magical traditions changed when written language came along? Yes, I think, I think probably like so many things, they became formalised both in the sense of the knowledge that, you know, you could write it down on a cuneiform tablet or in hieroglyphics. But I think probably they also linked into formalization in the sense that people like Ashipu, people who were recognized magicians, were also sort of were separated from the broader group of people. There, there was a specialist that you could, you could link to magic. And 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 for the Ashipu, who I keep talking about, I mean, a lot of a lot of their training was to read and remember magical texts. 
and and this almost certainly happened. I mean, it's said nobody knows. It's said that the druids in Britain um, could remember vast amounts of information. So to but which which was not written. So so to become a druid, you had to spend a decade or more learning all this stuff and, and remembering it and being able to use it in the appropriate manner. So when people were able to write, then you could download a lot of that information and knowledge. And maybe then it became a bit more formalized than it had been, because even even the best memory will misremember things over over a period of time which is slightly and uh, not impossible but harder to do once you've written it all down yeah did in the 20th century do you think that the magical there seems to be a sort of campery the sort of madame blavatsky's and the alistair crowley's yeah you know they kind of come off looking like frauds don't they yeah probably were <laughs> is is there a sort of serious magical tradition still going on do you think yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, I think the flip side of, of magic being marginalised by religion and science over the last few centuries is it then became very attractive to anyone who was countercultural. So someone like Alistair Crowley, you know, whatever he wanted, was to subvert the, the, the order of polite society in, in all its ways. So, so magic partly appealed to him because it was the inverse of, of how bourgeois society um, organized itself or, or understood the world. But, but yeah, and I think that has got in the way of thought. So Freud, for instance, was very interested in seances, very interested in telepathy, a whole range. And people have said possibly the notion of the unconscious, something that's beneath our conscious thought, came out of his encounters with things like the spirit world, that there is a world out there which is influencing us, which is incredibly important, but we don't normally have very easy access to. So I think um, in the 20th century, uh, magic and, and science, if, if you think of psychoanalysis as a science, have been linked. Well, Jung sort of crosses that boundary, doesn't he? Jung, definitely, yes, yes. All those tarot cards and, and archetypes and all those all those sorts of things. And the thing that fascinates me, and this is a long way above my pay grade as a humble archaeologist, are, are things like quantum mechanics, which I have the barest glimmer of. But there are things posited in quantum mechanics, you know, that, that, that uh, a party, two particles can be in the same place at the same time, and that possibly the observer influences the things that they're observing. I mean, certainly that latter, your, your average animist who feels that they're influencing the world and, and it then would say, yes, of course, we, we influence the, the physical world all the time. So I think, I think there are interesting things happening in science at the moment, which actually think, take us closer to what we've often thought of as magic. I think also there is one of the pioneering quantum physicists was in analysis with Jung. I think it was Linus Pauli. Ah, it could be. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's quite possible. I'll have to check. Anyway, well, we could go on and on, but unfortunately I have to, you know, put you in a box and saw you in half now. Um, 
Chris, this was fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Absolute pleasure. It's been really, uh, really good to talk to you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.